2: Ladies and gentlemen, Alvin Bishop, you know what he told me just now? I can't say it to you. But he said he was screwing up, and I don't think so. So give him a big hand, Alvin Bishop. I don't think so at all. I think all the cats was playing wonderful. Don't you think so? Come on, give it to him. The cats are doing this because they feel like doing it.
1: That is the unmistakable voice of blues legend B.B. King working the crowd during an April 15, 1968 show at the Generation Club in New York City that also featured Jimi Hendrix, the Paul Butterfield Blues Band, Al Cooper, and others. The session, which would become known as the King's Jam on bootlegs, captured a moment in time in rock and roll and American history. I'm Troy L. Smith, you're listening to CLE Rocks, and this is the story behind that epic night. To understand just how extraordinary the 1968 King's Jam was, you first have to understand the blues. In many ways, that starts with B.B. King. While artists like Blind Lemon Jefferson, T-Bone Walker, Ma Rainey, and others helped pioneer the genre, B.B. King quickly became the face of the blues as his career took off in the 1950s. King came from humble beginnings in Mississippi to become one of the genre's towering figures alongside the likes of Muddy Waters, John Lee Hooker, and Albert King.
2: Where I lived, the nearest studio was a hundred and some miles. And where I lived, there was no music store. I had to buy strings for my guitar from, from the drugstore. Wow. <laughs> and they only had one gauge. It was called Black Diamond. And that was all. And you you uh, get that? I, I hear that was um, stores that you could buy instruments, but the nearest place would have been 25 miles or more.
1: King's mesmerizing performances, specifically his iconic 1964 showcase at the Regal Theater in Chicago, would inspire a new generation of blues players, a list that included Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, and a young Paul Butterfield. Butterfield came up in Chicago as an aspiring blues harmonica player. He would eventually find mentorship from the Great Muddy Waters, king of the Chicago blues scene. Butterfield would go on to create the Paul Butterfield Blues Band a mixed-race act that would be a forum for standout players like Mike Bloomfield, Elvin Bishop, Gene Didwitty, and David Sanborn. Bishop recalls the magic of the Chicago blues scene at that time.
3: And Chicago was like uh, hip-hop is now. It was the living music of choice of the black people. And it uh, there were hundreds of blues clubs, believe it or not, and everybody was into it. So that makes it a lot more fun. We were trying to Played the, the kind of music we loved
1: and uh, we were delighted to be making a living doing it, you know. With artists like the Paul Butterfield Blues Band and Eric Clapton pushing the popularity of blues at the time, players began to migrate to other rock and roll venues around the country, which inevitably led them to New York's East Village. The Village had become a hotbed for jazz and folk music in the 1960s. Artists like Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, and Joan Baez could be seen performing at venues like Cafe A Go-Go, Cafe Wa, and Folk City. The emergence of the East Village led several blues players to make their home in the city, including a young Jimi Hendrix, who Bishop recalls meeting for the first time when Paul Butterfield Blues Band was on tour.
3: We were playing at a club called the Cafe Agogo. On the break in between shows, Bloomfield went over to another club in the village. He comes back, and the, his name was Jimmy James, and he wasn't Jimi Hendrix yet. There's a guy over at the Cafe what his, his guitar playing sounds like. Uh, Cars crashing into trains and stuff.
1: Hendrix would become a guitar player like no other, taking the blues and hard rock to new experimental heights with the Jimi Hendrix experience. By the late 1960s, he became a regular, whether in the crowd or on stage, at rock venues in New York. While the 1960s were consumed by the civil rights movement in the Vietnam War, the decade also became the greatest in music history. 1968 alone saw a series of landmark albums released, including the Jimi Hendrix Experience's Electric Ladyland, Van Morrison's Astral Weeks, the Beatles' White Album, the Rolling Stones' Beggar's Banquet, and a host of others. But the year would also be defined by violence and protest. January 1968 began with North Vietnam launching the Tet Offensive against the United States and South Vietnam. Then, on April 4th, the civil rights movement lost its greatest leader in Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.
0: I was deeply saddened last evening, as all men of goodwill must have been, by the senseless slaying of Dr. Martin Luther King.
1: The late reverend was remembered by his widow, Coretta Scott King, in a statement to the press televised by WGN Chicago the day of his assassination.
0: My husband often told the children that if a man had nothing that was worth dying for, then he was not fit to live. He said also that it's not how long you live, but how well you live. He knew that at any moment his physical life could be cut short. And we face this possibility squarely and honestly. My husband faced the possibility of death without bitterness or hatred. He knew that this was a sick society, totally infested with racism and violence, that questioned his integrity, maligned his motives, and distorted his views which would ultimately lead to his death. And he struggled with every ounce of his energy to save that society from itself.
1: Two days before King's assassination, B.B. King began a residency at the Generation Club on West 8th Street in Greenwich Village. The venue would host a Wake from Martin Luther King concert on April 7th, featuring B.B. King, Buddy Guy, Janis Joplin, Joni Mitchell, Jimi Hendrix, and others, Just eight days later, some of those artists would return for what would become known as the King's Jam. Such jam sessions were commonplace at the time, and when B.B. King played, every blues musician wanted in. That included a 24-year-old Al Cooper who was living in New York having just parted ways with his band Blood, Sweat & Tears.
4: The Generation Club uh, was a a really good club. It was run by a guy named Barry Fay, and they had great people playing there. However, the... The best part would come when the the late show was over and they would clear out the audience and <clears throat> all the musicians from around the village would then come in and we would jam every night till sun up. So it didn't really matter who was playing there. Jimi Hendrix lived a few blocks away and he lived about a block away from me, so I would always bump into him. Uh, so, this was a very common thing in that it happened every night. But uh, if BB would play there, then a lot of people would come down. <laughs>
1: lineup of who was on stage that night of april 15th 1968 has been debated through the years but this we know bb king led a group that included cooper on b3 organ Jimi hendrix on guitar paul butterfield on harmonica as well as the paul butterfield blues members philip wilson on drums and elvin bishop on guitar and vocals bishop recalls that time in new york being one of a kind
3: that was a jamming time it was uh, everything seems to be more calculated now and uh... The business people have more of a grip on the music than they did then. We were just kind of making it up as we went along. And uh, especially uh, in New York at that particular time, I remember lots of jam sessions with BB and uh, Hendrix and Clapton and Allman Brothers and just uh, everybody just
1: loved to jam, you know. Also on stage that night was an 18-year-old college student named Howard BuzzFeed on bass.
2: And we have a young uh, young bass player, Buzzy, on the bass.
1: Featon, a student at Maness School of Music, had recently auditioned for Elvin Bishop's new band. He didn't get the gig, but Bishop invited him to sit in on the jam session with B.B. King.
2: This is
5: new. This is all new to me. I mean, I knew that there were these events happening in the West Village, but I was never part of it, because I was in college, man, you know? So I brought my bass down there, and... Uh, Went up on stage before anybody got there and was kind of tuning up and, you know, adjusting the amp and all that stuff. And when I turned around, there was all these, you know, I was standing on stage with Jimi Hendrix and B.B. King and Al Cooper, and I thought I died and went to heaven. It was funny, man. I was a horrible bass player. I was not a good bass player. I was actually a better guitar player than I was a bass player. When you're 18, you don't have a clue about playing rhythm or how to sit in the pocket, or any of that. You know, it's all about play as loud, high, and fast as you possibly can until you're told to shut up. And that's basically was my mode. But, you know, I played in a lot of ensembles, you know, as a classical player. Orchestras, small chamber ensembles, and all that. So I knew about how to fit in. You know what I mean? That's what you learn. As a classical player, you learn how to fit in. Those guys took me to school in a big hurry. I had drumsticks flying by my head, you know, and the drummer screaming at me, play rhythm, mother!" you know. So I did learn about that because those guys were incredibly generous and supportive of me. They knew that I was over my head.
1: King, the knight's elder statesman, would lead Featon and the others on a set that went until the sun came up. The list of songs included King's classic, My Own Fault, Darling, a cover of Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone, and several blues jams. The playful nature and familiarity between the musicians can be heard through King's voice, as he ridicules them for playing too loud as he speaks with the crowd. Ladies
2: and gentlemen. Hey! Well, take it in. Ladies and gentlemen... Working can here. No, well, no, stop, baby. Don't do it like that. <laughs> Just keep it slow. Oh, I'm on the radio you now, you know. Since we started here, what, did, what year was it? What, uh, what day was it? April the 2nd? April the 2nd? Since we started here, April the 2nd. All right shoot some of these cats back in
1: my man. Get the beer. I got the beer. I don't have one. <laughs> all right. All right! A recording of the session exists because Hendrix never went anywhere without his two-track Revox tape recorder, says Al Cooper.
4: When Hendrix would play, he would bring up you know, like a professional tape recorder with him and, and always record it for himself. He lived half a block from me. So we saw each other all the time, in the daytime and the nighttime and like that. And if one of us was playing, then the other one would come see him play. If I had a gig, he would he would always come. And if he had a gig, I would always go. So we, we, we got pretty friendly, and then I ended up playing on his album. I actually met him, uh, uh, I was uh, uh, the uh, assistant stage manager at the Monterey Pop Festival. So I met him, and I have uh, a terrific picture, of, uh, or a few pictures, of the two of us at Soundcheck. And he invited me to play with him. And this was his debut in the United States, uh, once he became Jimi Hendrix, with his his, uh, uh, two sidemen from England. And they had never played anywhere in America, and this was the first time that they played at Monterey.
1: At one point in the show, King finds himself amazed by Hendrix playing. Hendrix idolized King, but the blues disciple had become a master. Jam Sessions, like the one at the Generation Club on April fifteenth, 1968, wouldn't go on for much longer. New venues sprouted up, including the Fillmore East, which would host iconic concerts by the Allman Brothers, Grateful Dead, Aretha Franklin, and others. As the 1960s came to a close, intimate venues like the Generation Club became few and far between.
4: There was a time when th- things changed. The Fillmore took a lot of business away from... Those clubs. So when the when the Fillmore got big and and people would go there all the time because uh, neither of those clubs could compete with the Fillmore because the uh, Fillmore held about fifteen hundred to two thousand people and uh, and these clubs held like you know two hundred people. So that was pretty much the difference.
1: The Generation Club would close later in nineteen sixty eight but the building that housed it continued its historic legacy. Hendrix commissioned it to become what is now known as Electric Ladyland Studios in Greenwich Village, where he would spend the early months of the 1970s experimenting further with his guitar sound. Sadly, Hendrix would pass away in 1970. The other musicians on stage would go on to work with various other projects over the next few decades, with Butterfield passing away in 1987 and B.B. King dying in 2015 at the age of 89. King was remembered eloquently at that time by former Rolling Stones guitarist Bill Wyman in an interview with British television network ITN.
2: The most amazing thing about him and his band were they could thunder out like any band could, you know, and then they'd just stop and just go to a whisper. Right to silence, you could hear a pin drop and he'd be playing and then he'd sing, you know, and then and then suddenly the band would start coming in, you know, and it would be so there were these amazing dynamics which we all learned from how to take you know a song and put it into a real simple down there, down there, and then build it up into a climax. And Otis Redding did it, you know, we tried a little tenderness and lots of people. And he was a, a master of that. And, um, you know, what can I say about the guy? He was, he was special. There won't be another
1: one. Buzz Featon would end up replacing Elvin Bishop as guitarist in the Paul Butterfield Blues Band before working with other music legends like Greg Allman, Stevie Wonder, and Bob Dylan. But the music collaborations like the King's Jam still hold a special place in Featon's heart, as they were about much more than just jamming together.
5: That was a really magical time. It was completely magical because there was all of this creative energy and all of this new stuff that nobody ever heard. That idea was really brand new. It was brand new. And and it was kind of the same ethic that drove the 60s. There was hope for, for humanity. That was just all over the place. It it drove everything. You know, the hope for humanity, the the hope of Kennedy and the hope of Martin Luther King, it gave people the sense that that era, not just the Butterfield Band and the music and the jam session, but the whole idea that people would, would come together to create something new and to be in search of deeper spiritual experience.
1: Thank you for listening to CLE Rocks. Audio and interviews were provided by Getty Images, as well as interviews conducted by Cleveland.com. For more on CLE Rocks, visit our page on ACAST or go to cleveland.com backslash podcasts. I'm Troy Smith. Until next time.